Welcome to the third in this interdepartmental series of seminars on children and youth in a changing world. My name is Elaine Chase. I work in the Department of Social Policy and Intervention, currently on some um, a study around poverty, shame, and social exclusion, but more broadly around um, numerous studies on children and young people's well-being. It's my great pleasure to introduce Lucy Kluver, also from the same department, who's going to talk today about really children's participation in the research, in the management of research, I suppose, really. Um, but I'll hand over to Lucy now, who's going to talk for about 20 minutes, and then I think going to show a short clip, um, and then we'll open the floor for questions. Okay, thank you. Great, well thank you, it's lovely to see everyone here. I'm not planning to speak for, for very long, because I think there's something deeply wrong about having a seminar on participation where one person talks for the entire session. So what I hope to do is to sort of set a bit of the background um, that we found out about child participation, and actually Yunin has, and Rathia have just walked in the back and did lots of the literature reviewing for this. Um, but then to, to think about some of the disasters and okay things and good things that have happened when we've tried to do it. But really just to use our example as a, as a springboard for saying how can we be doing this, how should we be doing this, um, and how and is this a useful thing that we should be trying to improve. Um, these are all photos and all the photos that you'll see are photos taken by our teen advisory group um, that they wanted to accompany um, the, the kind of presentations and talks that we did that, about which they were doing. And I have to say, this is one of the areas that's quite interesting, is the ethics of working with a teen advisory group, because we came back to them so many times to ask their permission that they eventually sent a little sort of a group of four of them came to ask us to please stop bugging them. Um, and they really wanted all this stuff, and could we just stop being so paranoid, please? Um, so I think there's good and interesting questions about ethics. Okay, so why would we include children in a participatory way in our research planning? And this isn't the same as participatory children, child research, which is generally small-scale and qualitative. This is really thinking about large-scale projects or smaller-scale projects, but thinking about including children in the planning and research design, in a sense, partly as, as um, researchers rather than researchers. Um, although I think the, 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 it, gets very, it can get very bland. So why might we do it? Well, there are ethical reasons. The um, Convention of the Rights of the Child says that children's rights should be considered in all research that's done with them. Um, there's, um, there's clear links to our programming approaches and increasingly in international development and in, in our kind of fields we're talking about things like partnership and power sharing and community collaboration and I've coloured those in green because someone once used the phrase to me a spinach word she said a spinach word is a word everyone knows it's good so if you talk about spinach everyone knows spinach is good and I think that's true of these kind of words. We don't always unpack them terribly well. We, we sometimes accept them unhesitatingly without saying really how does this work in practice and how does it work from, from all sides. Um, there are also, certainly for us, scientific reasons for, for having child participation in the planning, design and dissemination of our research, which is that when we're trying to do research that is engaging with children, and especially if you're working with vulnerable children and working with sensitive issues like sex and death and, and school and stigma and families, you want children to be able to talk to you and to tell you the truth, and you want to create an environment that is right for children to take part in that research. Now, there's something arrogant about adults saying that they know how that will be. 
that, that they can... And that there is something, I mean, there's experience, but there's also something about being a kid yourself or being a teenager yourself that it's quite hard for us to recapture. And also, what's really becoming very clear to us as we work with our teen advisory group is just how fast being a teenager has moved on from our understandings. You know, even understandings of some of my research team 10 years ago, it's, it's radically changed. So the scientific reason is it might help us make less mistakes. It might help our research be better to have these kids involved. And certainly for us, that's been unquestionably true. So what's the kind of overall picture? And when we were first starting to, to think about, not starting to think about doing it, but starting to thinking about talking about it in an academic way, we really started searching the literature. And, and I think our whole team spent quite a while trying to find it. We, because we're quants people, we struggled a bit because we, it wasn't in PubMed. Um, and we had to look a bit beyond our usual, our usual go-tos. But what we found was that it seemed that in the vast majority of research on children, child participation doesn't take place. Um, and certainly in the quantitative research, we don't see a lot of child participatory work. We do see some in qualitative um, research. We also see some quite um, innovative stuff, like the UK National Health Service Young Persons Advisory Group. They advise on clinical trials and advise on pharmaceuticals and, and advising the NHS on how they should be thinking. I'm not sure if that's still surviving, but it's a really interesting, I think, case study of, of where they've tried really hard. Um, we, there seems to be quite a wide range of ideas about what child participation is in research, and this leads, this ranges from a kind of youth-led um, identification of everything, identifying the topic, designing the research, doing the data collection themselves, doing the analysis and dissemination. Um, and, and you see that mainly in the very qualitative participatory focus. And it seems to move along a spectrum to a kind of quite distant advisory group. Um, and there does seem to be some kind of tokenistic stuff as well, although that doesn't, it's quite hard to read up about that because it's mentioned very briefly, generally. But I think our question for us was how does that model fit large-scale quantitative research? And, and also a question about how that fits um, qualitative research that isn't in that child participatory you know, a child-led model. Um, I think we can also, when, when we realised that there wasn't as much as we wanted, we started looking beyond the research literature into some of the work on child advisory groups for non-research. So, for example, UNICEF in South Africa, the Nelson Mandela Children's Parliament, are, are trying to engage with ideas, and REPSI, which is a regional psychosocial support initiative. We met with quite a lot of them and said, OK, so what are you doing and how are you finding it? And um, so far, their answers have been, we're not quite sure, can you tell us? Um, so, so there seems to be some good work in progress. I'm sure there's lots more that, that hasn't been written up and that we haven't seen. And I certainly think this might be an area where the practice is, is much further than the published literature on the practice. I'm talking too much. I'm going to try and speed up. So what are some of the things that we have gotten wrong and some of the things that the tag team have gotten right? And this is, I think, the time to introduce the tag team. They were originally the child advisory group, but they said that wasn't cool enough and they wanted to be a teen advisory group. And the, the blame for what has become a sort of ongoing um, and larger scale thing than we planned lies squarely on the shoulders of Kate Orkin here, who, when she was a master's student, we were planning a day trip with a, with a bunch of kids. And Kate said, why don't we take them on a weekend? Why don't we do this properly? Um, and we embarked on this kind of weekend camping trip with a bunch of kids, with, I think, very little idea of what we were doing, right or wrong. 
Um, and at the end of the weekend, the kids all said, right, so when's next year's camp? And we realised that we'd, we'd set ourselves a precedent, we'd, set, we'd built a relationship, we'd, we'd, um, we'd started something that if we really meant it, we were going to have to carry on. And that was, I think, five or six years ago. Now we're, we're having our sixth tag camp um, in a couple of weeks' time, and we had a lengthy planning meeting today involving marshmallows and blankets. Um, with several people with PhDs worrying about marshmallows and blankets. Um, it's also important, though, and we'll keep coming back to this theme, to think about the fact that these are kids living in extreme vulnerability. Um, and I think as an example, these are pictures that the kids at one point said, could, we, could they have cameras for a week? And this is quite a similar, this is quite a classic um, kind of... Um, uh, ethnographic methodology where kids take home cameras and use them. We didn't use it so much for research, it was something that they wanted to do. And when they came back after a week, one of the girls, if you look at the top picture, had 23 photos, all very much like the one you can see at the top. And we couldn't work out what it was. And we realised when we developed the film that this is a funeral, and it was her mother's funeral, and the day after we gave her the camera, her mother had passed away, and she'd taken 23 photographs of her mother's funeral. And it really brought, I, th I think, home to me just how extreme the levels of vulnerability we're dealing with and just how carefully we need to approach this kind of idea of involving children in research about HIV AIDS, which is what our studies are doing, when they're living this experience right now. And they are very vulnerable. So I'm not sure we've got answers, but certainly I hope it'll raise some questions. So just to give a super brief background of the research, this, this is the tag team are part of a collaborative research project, a set of research projects with the South African government, with some kind of the NGOs who really fund the orphans and vulnerable children work in South Africa, and with some universities, um, uh, the National Action Committee is a, a sort of government and NGO-led body in South Africa, and at the bottom there is the Teen Advisory Group, who are seen as a key input, like everyone else, into the research. Um, and, and to give a very broad background, there are two big longitudinal studies, one interviewing 1,000 children over four years, one interviewing 6,000 children and 2,600 of their caregivers over, um, over a year. And I can happy to answer lots of questions about random stratified sampling, but I suspect they're not, not what you came here to, to find out about. But what are they trying to find out? They're trying to find out what are the needs of children in AIDS-affected families? Are their needs different to, to other poor children in different circumstances? And what can we do to help them? Essentially, that's what we're looking at. And it's looking at a specifically policy and programming-focused study. So it's trying to find out these things to feed them directly into policy and programming. And a lot of the way that the research is designed is that it's designed with policymakers and programmers to specifically answer those questions. We've also done some qualitative bolt-on research, um, and Rachel over here did some research in, um, in one of our study sites, which really did call into question some of the quantitative findings um, that we had. So we, ha we had to brace ourselves when we read that. Um, and I hopefully, um, we couldn't go back and redo that specific study, but hopefully that's informed the future ones that we've done. So, this is our, our last year's tag weekend. Don't be fooled by the sunshine. Um, we mistimed it. It was freezing, icy cold. Um, and, uh, and we all slept in, in tents um, in the freezing cold and we gave the blankets to the kids. Hence the worry about blankets this year. Um, but what are some of the things that, um, that we've learned in terms of our lessons? 
We've certainly learned that Kate was right. It's better to have weekends and not single meetings. Adults can walk into a meeting, sit down, focus, and engage. Well, some adults can. Um, these kids can't. It takes them, and we, we pick them up after school on a Friday at lunchtime. They don't really relax until late Friday night. Some of them don't really relax until Saturday lunchtime. For a lot of these kids, particularly in, in these townships, they've built up a huge veneer of, of um, a protective veneer. So some of the boys will come in looking like gangsters and will give the gangster swagger and will not say anything until they realize, until they've tested whether this is a, a truly safe space. Um, and you can often actually see the click. You can see the point at which they realize that actually they can be honest and open and it's going to be okay. But that doesn't happen instantly. And it certainly doesn't happen from telling them that it's going to be okay. It's something that they have to calibrate themselves um, and decide in their own time. Um, we, I think we underestimated how important it was for the kids to have time away from their very stressful home environments. Um, we thought of it as a kind of an exercise, whereas for them it's, it's their annual holiday um, in a sense. We also have to think continually about safety concerns, and this will come up over and again. The, the, the doing child participation in research, we spend an awful lot of our time thinking about the practicalities of it. Um, what, happens when, um, what happens when you've got a group of HIV-positive kids and you have to think about making sure they get their meds? What happens when you take a group of kids who've never left a township into the countryside and they're suddenly walking up rocks and there's rivers and that they've never had these experiences? We spend a lot of time worrying about that, maybe too much time worrying. We also realise just how much organisation is needed. We reckon it's a ten, 10 hours of organisation to one hour of, of tag camp weekend. Um, a whole team of people and an extensive amount of preparatory work with the kids. You can't, um, in these environments, just uh, ring them up, make a date, turn up and pick them up. It's much more complicated than that. Um, and you have to do repeat visits to see how they are and to, to make sure everything's okay, to make sure that they're, they're in a context in which they can come with you. Um, and, and then it all goes wrong on the day. Um, and inevitably, one child will throw up in a car. Um, that's, that's probably one of my key lessons. And my main aim is that it's not in my car. <laughs> um, it's also very clear to us that if you don't make it fun, and genuinely fun, you don't get anything. You don't get good research, you don't have a good time, the kids don't have a good time, and it's all rather miserable. Um, so we really had to learn that if we did have serious things that we wanted to discuss with the kids, then we had to either make them fun or alternate them with, um, with fun activities. Um, and the kids really do um, like to engage with things. This is one of the examples where we did a parliamentary, uh, a parliamentary session and we set up different parties, different political parties. And they all wore suits and had ties and briefcases. And, and, they, and they, set up, um, they set up rival parties and set out party political broadcasts of what they would do. And, and the parties were specifically designed to help kids in situations like them. So they planned out their whole structure. And then they all had monopoly money and planned out how much they would spend on the different things. Um, and they certainly did really engage with that. Um, but you couldn't go straight from that into something else. You had to go and play soccer and then roast marshmallows and do a talent show. And then you could move on to something else more serious. We've also been trying to, to introduce kids' input into not just the research, but also into what happens in the teen advisory group. 
and, and what will happen in next year's camp and, and how the process will go. And that's led to some slightly unexpected results, which I'll show you. The last thing was food. We had a disastrous year where we took them to a place that did, self, that did catering automatically, and when the kids hated the food, it was complete disaster. Luckily there was a pool but they hated the food and we, we now have very strict instructions of exactly what they want to eat which we stick to slavishly. Um, but I think on a sort of wider level we, we made the wrong assumption that kids were able to move out of their comfort zone in terms of food. They weren't. What they were very happy to do was have lots of food but they didn't want it to be food that was unfamiliar to them. Um, we certainly have to think um, when you're working particularly with teenagers about sexual safety, both sexual safety on the camp um, and a kind of um, obsessive, uh, everyone ends up sleeping in the tents with the kids to stop anyone moving from, we were terrified of sort of tag camp babies. Um, um, thinking about kids on antiretrovirals, thinking about getting repeated consent and consent from their caregivers, and especially where it gets complicated where their caregiver isn't around or isn't able to give consent. Um, um, and issues, this, very similar issues to the ones that come up in focus groups around confidentiality and around how do you, you know, in a sense, how do you engender an environment where kids know that they can be open, and for them that's a crucial part of the, of the experience but then make that so that, they know, that everyone understands and doesn't go and spread rumours about the other kids. And I, to be honest, I think we've just been lucky with that so far. I think it's, that's a very difficult thing to control. Um, I think this down here was an example of one of our, more, uh, our less useful efforts. This was the year that we did, um, we did a session on condoms and, and contraception. I think mainly because we felt that it was something that they really didn't know enough about and thought it would be helpful. The next year, um, we had two babies that came on the tag camp, and this year we have five babies. So uh, clearly that wasn't our most successful approach. Um, what are some of the things that we really learned about putting child input into research? We learned that we have to work on their level, not, not expect them to be on our level. Um, we learned that they can be um, incredibly helpful to us in designing the study tools. And you can see there's an exercise down there. You can see at the top it says, go ahead. We had three giant posters attached to three trees. And one said, go ahead. One said, ask with caution. And one said, don't ask. And we tried out different questions to see what kind of things you could and the kids felt you could and couldn't ask directly, indirectly, or not at all. Um, uh, but but what we, we've certainly worked with them extensively now on planning new studies and, and fielding ideas with them about what kind of new research we should do. We've tried with post-research dissemination, um, and it's been a bit limited because they don't necessarily have a very good sense of the policy and programming world, um, and that's been a bit limited. But certainly they've been very involved in, in programming that has come from the research, and I'll show you an example of that. Um, and then talent shows, very important, soccer um, and marshmallows, which come up over and over again and, um, as absolutely crucial. If we forgot the marshmallows, I think there might be a, a mutiny. What are some of the questions that we still really struggle with? We really struggle with the fact that these are kids experiencing... Oh, that's, uh, sorry, if you see at the bottom, the child looking sort of Dracula-esque has about 15 marshmallows in his mouth and is trying to say the word chubby bunny. Um, but, but we certainly had a whole set of problems to do with the kind of extreme trauma that these kids are experiencing. For them, disclosure 
is an absolutely crucial part of this. The ability to talk about what they're experiencing at home is something that they can't do generally. But it's also had unexpected knock-on effects. For example, in our first tag team, one of the kids start was a whole set of kids were talking about their parents' HIV status. And one of the kids came up afterwards and said, I thought my mum just had TB, but I've realised now from listening to this that she's got HIV. And we hadn't, we hadn't anticipated that at all. Um, we, we certainly see that the vulnerable kids, are, you know, they get upset easily. Things trigger them off. Um, they'll have arguments with each other. There'll be moments of extreme emotion in the space of the weekend and, and, um, and, and ongoing as we visit them throughout the year. And I think that's something that, that we're still trying to work out what the best way is to deal with beyond just the human level uh, of that. And I think wider questions about are we getting the same things out of this process? You know, and it doesn't matter if we're not getting the same things out of this process. But I think there's real questions about, um, I think many, many of the ideas about child participation in research don't necessarily really get to grips with what that means for the kids in a long-term way. Um, we still have real questions about responsibility. What happens when things go wrong for our teen advisory group? And things have really gone wrong for these kids. And I think we've certainly found that we've gone, we've been unable to, to keep any kind of a, um, of a kind of research objectivity. We've got the bursaries for school. We've gone to the magistrates' court with them when some, their relatives have tried to steal their homes. You know, we've taken them to hospital when we need when they need it. We've, we, I think we've certainly lost all sense that the, these are, are um, that we're in any way objective with these kids. And, and, you know, and we have interfered, we hope, in a good way with their lives, um, although we've been astounded by how bad things have gone. We've built personal relationships these, with these kids. We've got really big questions about what we do when the kids grow up. And, and we've, sometimes it works where they, send, they sort of opt out. They get back to 19 and they say, I think I'm a bit old now, I'll send my younger brothers and sisters. But sometimes we get you know, a 20-year-old, 21-year-old who says, I still want to come. And they're not teens anymore. They're certainly not children. And we're trying to work out what to do with that. We've also got questions now that we've, in a sense, made a personal commitment to these kids about long-term funding and how you build that into long-term funding. Um, and I think you know, we've ended up doing some scrabbling for that. Um, but real questions as well about, about empowerment and, and what whether we've really achieved empowerment and in, in what ways. And I think that this quote at the bottom was a good example of where we might be getting different things from this. We think we're building a research program and they think this helps me to talk about this because it helps me deal with what's going on at home. Um, this is an example of um, the questionnaire that would have looked quite different if the teen advisory group hadn't told us to model it on Just 17 magazine which is called Seventeen Magazine in South Africa. Um, this was a um, programming guidance done by a, a regional NGO that, um, that used the young carers' research um, and then came and piloted it with our tag team, with our teen advisory group, um, who, who inputted into what, what should be in here um, and what this programming should be. And this has actually been rolled out throughout southern and eastern Africa. 
And they've also contributed to a large-scale quantitative research study. And this is one of the examples of the kind of outputs that we produce. This is looking at risk of transactional sex on children. And if you look on the left-hand side, you can see that a girl who grows up in a healthy family is not abused and has enough to eat, has a just under 1% chance of having transactional sex. Um, that sex in exchange for money or food or, or school fees, and a very high risk for HIV infection. But if we look to the right, we can see that a girl who's got an AIDS-sick parent, who's abused and hungry, has a 57% chance of HIV infection. And those kind of findings feed into policy and programming, and it would be they've absolutely contributed to outcomes like that. We've also had a very unexpected outcome, um, and this is really where I'm going to end and stop talking, but how, have I talked too long? Um, which is that we asked last year um, what the kids would really like to do next, um, and they rather shocked us by telling us that they wanted to make a movie about their experiences and about what it was like living and growing up with a, with a parent who had HIV-AIDS. Um, and, um, and, of course, the problem is once you've asked them, then you kind of have to do it. So we, we managed to get together some money, um, and perhaps it would be valuable to see this movie because it certainly brought up a whole set of questions and ethical issues for us about whether this was the kind of thing that we should be doing as researchers, we're not quite sure, but also, you know, how, how, how right was it to do this? Um, and we continually worried about it and went back to the kids and they continually said, yes, this is absolutely what we want to do. We want the world to know what it is like. Um, so, if I can make this work, let's have a look at what they came up with. Um, so, I think now's the time for certainly me to stop talking um, and to have a think about whether there's um, questions and problems and issues that this raises and how we could do better, but I, I think more widely how we could do better as researchers. There's a bunch of texts um, that might be helpful as well. Thank you.